Don't worry, Nigel Farage will be back in the anchor chair tomorrow. If you're wondering where he's been, here he is to tell you. All yours, Nigel. Mark, thank you. Yep, I've been missing an action. Thank you for holding the fort. Yesterday, I did go to Mar-a-Lago. I sat down for half an hour with the 45th president of the USA, Donald J. Trump. Um, and I think we covered a lot of areas. It's a very wide-ranging interview. Um, some really interesting points. And as ever, Donald Trump doesn't hold back. He tells you what he thinks. For example, I talked about the Duchess of Sussex and the fact she's almost become a political lobbyist in the USA. Here's what he had to say about that. I'm not a fan of hers at all, and I think she's very disrespectful to the Queen that we just spoke about, yeah. who's such a great woman, who's such a great person, a uh, historic person. I think she's very disrespectful to the royal family, uh, but maybe most importantly to the Queen. And of course, the biggest question of all, is Donald Trump going to run in 2024? Polls at the moment showing him ahead of Joe Biden in those key swing states. And I put it to him. I mean, why on earth would you give up an amazing life with your family around you at Mar-a-Lago, owning golf courses all over the world? Why give it up to go back into what is absolute hell? This is what he said. If you love the country, you have no choice. It's not a question. It's just this is a wonderful, beautiful life. But I like that, too, because I was helping people. That's why I did it. And uh, I think you'll be happy in the future, too. Well, I think that's the clearest indication we've yet had that Trump fully intends to run in 2024. Get the full interview tomorrow night here on GB News at 7 for an extended two-hour special. That's uh, incredible, Nigel. We will look forward to that. Uh, aside from the politics, aside from... Uh, uh, opening up on Megan and all the rest of it, I'm extremely envious of the colour of that sea behind Nigel. Did you get a look at that? It's not like that in the North Sea or the Irish Sea. That's tomorrow right here on GB News, 7pm for two hours. Donald J. Trump and Nigel Farage together. You will not want to miss that. A few months back, Turkmenistan became the first nation on earth to mandate COVID vaccines for everyone over 18. To be unvaccinated is to be a criminal. And you're probably saying, well, that's Turkmenistan. They criminalize a lot of things over there. The late President Nyazov criminalized lip syncing because he was tired of seeing clapped out pop acts mouthing to their ancient hits. He outlawed ballet. A lot of people dislike ballet, but only Turkmenistan regards it as a national security threat. President Nyazov banned news presenters from wearing makeup because he could no longer tell the men from the women. It's a, com it's a common problem right here at uh, GB News. Uh, I just passed one of my colleagues in uh, the corridor and I said, hi, Michelle, and it turned out to be Alistair Stewart. Uh, so I'm sympathetic to that one. Uh, Turkmenistan is now telling the average lip-syncing, rouged and pancaked, ballet-dancing, unvaccinated Turkmen that they're committing a fourth crime. So what's the big deal? But the Turkmen model is creeping westward. In Greece, as of January 16th, anybody over 60 who's not vaccinated will have to pay a 100 euro fine every month. So if you stay unvaccinated till next Christmas, that's 1,200 euros, which goes directly into the Greek healthcare system. The prime minister says it's not a punishment, just a quote, health fee. In Austria, 
As of February, vaccination will be mandatory for adults. And if you're caught wandering around unvaccinated, you'll be liable to a fine of €7,200. Or if you can't pay it, a jail term, which definitely is a punishment. Hard to pass off a jail term as a health fee. In England... As of 4 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time today, persons not wearing a mask in shops or on public transport will be liable to initial fines of £200, doubling with each further offence. So caught without a mask a second time, it's £400. Third time, £800. Fourth, £1,600, rising to £6,400. The mask mandate doesn't apply to restaurants or pubs, except when it comes to getting a takeaway curry, because apparently the COVID doesn't care to hang around the bar or the all-you-can-eat breakfast buffet, but just likes to lurk around a giant kebab for takeaway purchases. So um, presumably, if you don't mask up for a quick pop in to pick up your curry, that 200 Pound fine starts kicking in mighty fast. There doesn't appear to be a lot of science behind any of this between the giant sweating kebab and uh, having uh, scampi or Dover sole in a restaurant. COVID is with us indefinitely, and every so often there'll be some Omicron of the month variant with eight dozen different mutations that pops up in, ooh, Tajikistan, no, Costa Rica, no, Bhutan, no, it's in the South Sandwich Islands, and the borders will be shut down for everyone, uh, except that is uh, for whoever shows up on the South Coast. COVID is bad. The free world's response to COVID is worse, however you measure it. Cancer deaths up, according to The Lancet. Deaths from breast cancer are up 8 to 10 percent. Colorectal cancer, 15 to 16 percent. Teen suicides are up, according to America's Centers for Disease Control. Attempted suicides by girls 12 to 17 are up 50 percent. School results, on the other hand, are way, way down. A study from Brown University in the United States finds that children born during the pandemic have significantly reduced verbal, motor and overall cognitive performance, just in case you thought that our society wasn't dumbing down fast enough. And still we cower in front of the next exciting variant of the week. Uh, the, uh, The next terrifying variant of the week. COVID might kill you. COVID stand without end will certainly kill our world. Yet Britain and most of the rest of the West remains curled up in a permanent fetal cringe and the fellows who unleashed it on the planet and exactly two years ago were sitting in Beijing fine-tuning their official lies will get off scot-free. Doesn't seem a lot of point to that. The Chinese economy is going gangbusters and every YouTube video out of Wuhan makes it look like the only party town left on earth. Meanwhile, we put the lockdown in, the lockdown out, in, out, in, out, shake it all about. To what end? Shoot me an email. Uh, especially like vicious and hostile ones, GBviews at gbnews.uk or tweet us at gbnews. Professor Andrew MacDonald is a virologist at the University of Leeds, and we're very pleased to have him with us. Uh, what is the, the science that says you, you don't need a mask for a restaurant, but you do need a mask to go to Tesco's? What's the science behind that? Good evening, Mark. 
I'm not sure that the science backs up the government's model thinking on masks. Now, there is strong science that says that wearing a mask when you're in crowded indoor settings will reduce the level of transmission. But I, I have to say, I, I agree with you in terms of you're, you're just as likely to catch this virus if you're in the cinema as you are um, on the bus or something like that. So I, th I think the right. government comms on this is somewhat muddled. And I think that is, that is a great shame because if they're bringing this back in because of the genuine potential for Omicron, then I, I think they missed a trick because they're, they're mud, muddying the waters again in terms of efficacy of these mitigations. How seriously do you think Ooh. our leaders take it? Uh, Boris Johnson was glimpsed at an event uh, just a couple of days ago where he was supposed to be masked up, and instead he's in there unmasked, whooping it up. The same thing has been seen of Joe Biden, uh, Justin Trudeau, almost every uh, world leader you can name. All the so, so in other words, the, uh, the people who are telling us this is serious, we don't want to impose mask mandates on you, but we have to because of the danger of this thing, are then uh, gallivanting all over town unmasked, almost as if they don't believe their own words on this. Well, I think that... I think I think it's. I think that is a poor, a poor image that they're setting, because if they're wanting everybody to follow this, and I, I would implore your listeners, your viewers, that if they're in a crowded indoor setting, to put that mask on, it will have an effect on transmission. It will keep people safer. It is such a shame that you get images as the one that's gone all around Twitter, as you say, of the prime minister, um, maskless. Mm. Um, I, I think it's a poor message to send. Do you think, uh, as was suggested on uh, Michelle's show last hour, that we are going to be wearing masks forever? No, no, I, I don't. I don't think we are. Um, I think we were caught with our pants down, quite frankly, when Delta came to the UK, and so I, I think the government mm. has tried to act more quickly to the potential of Omicron, which is why they've brought in uh, the, the, the speed adopt, the supercharged um, booster regime, and they've reintroduced the mask wearing. I, I cannot see a future scenario where we will be wearing masks forever, but we do have to appreciate that we are not out of the woods yet in terms of the pandemic. We still have a large number of people dying on a daily basis, and we still need to vaccinate a larger percentage of the population, which we are doing. We're just not there yet. Well, well, just to go back to what, what you said there, that we won't be wearing masks forever. If you had said when uh, Boris Johnson was telling us, uh, talking about two weeks to flatten the curve in March of 2020, that in December 2021, we would be uh, facing a second Christmas COVID. Um, again, most people would have thought most people would have thought that was ridiculous. It's pretty clear now COVID isn't going away. And these variants are going to come along every month, every six weeks, somewhere or other on the planet. 
Um, is, is it not time perhaps to have a strategy targeted towards the most vulnerable, uh, which is those over, wherever you want to set the age, over those, those over 60, 55, whatever, particularly with underlying conditions, and, and recognize that for people younger than that, it's, unless you've got some serious underlying condition, it's not a big deal. So I'd argue back against, against your argument there on a, on a couple of points. The first thing I would say is, actually, the first thing I'll do is agree with you, that most of us had not in our worst nightmares assumed that we would still be in the middle of a pandemic. I think Delta coming along really, really changed things um, because of its immune evasion, its higher rate of, um, of transmission. But we have a major weapon in our arsenal, and that is the vaccines. And they are hugely effective, again, in protecting against serious disease and hospitalization, particularly with our most vulnerable citizens. We also now, let's remember, have antivirals that are coming on the scene. So we have Molnipiravir and Paxlovid that are going to start to be given to those most vulnerable citizens. So I think we have measures in our public health and in our NHS that will allow us to fight this virus more effectively. But if I can just say that actually three quarters of the adults that are under 50 that are in hospital right now with COVID-19 mm. that are filling up our wards are unvaccinated, are root out of this right. nightmare situation is for people to take the vaccine. It works against all the variants. It is likely that it will still work against Omicron. It might be slightly less effective. What? We don't yet have the data, but it should still work against serious disease. What's, what's your attitude to uh, statistics from very high vaccinated uh, societies such as Israel or indeed uh, from our backyard in Gibraltar, which I think was the first place on earth to achieve 100% adult vaccination. Uh, yet has seen again this huge this huge surge. Why why is why is it a reasonable position to think that the vaccine is perhaps uh, underperforming in Gibraltar or Israel? No, no, it's it's not. And if I can take the case of Israel, um, actually the percentage of people who were vaccinated in Israel is not as high as people imagine. They're probably on a par. As us, where Israel were fantastic is in getting their vaccine rolled out. So what what you have and what you will always have is some vaccinated people will become ill, and the reason for this is firstly that the vaccine is not one hundred percent effective. Very few vaccines are. So even if one hundred percent of people had the vaccine, it's only about ninety two percent effective. They still have a small percentage of people mm. who could become ill. Secondly, the bulk of the people who have the highest uptake of vaccine are the elderly and the clinically vulnerable. So whilst the vaccine is reducing their risk of serious disease, of course, these are a, an older population. They're a more vulnerable population. Some of them are immunocompromised. So they find it more right. difficult to fight infection. So you're always going to get this, this skewing 
of the data. And it's only when you really look into the data that you see that actually um, around, you've got a tenfold higher chance of being hospitalized if you're unvaccinated yeah. compared to if you're vaccinated. We should also remember no, that no, I... much more population is vaccinated than unvaccinated. So that skews yeah. the, the raw data. But we have to be careful about banding no, no, around we're... those statistics. No, no, I, I take that, that point, uh, Doctor, and certainly we want people to uh, enjoy sufficient protection that they stay out of hospital so all those untreated uh, cancer cases uh, can Absolutely. get back in there and uh, and their stage two cancer won't have metastasized to stage four. Uh, very good of you to Absolutely. join us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Coming up, coming up, your reactions to where we stand in COVID land as it approaches the start of the third year, plus a standoff at Hastings from people determined not to let the new Normans land and the great Gambo, a peerless picker of the pops, turns scourge of the cops with his campaign against what he sees as Cressida Dick's corrupt and malign Metropolitan Police. All straight ahead on GB News. Welcome back to Farage. Let's hear what you have to say. Jen says, are the governments of the world trying to incite revolution? We have had enough, uh, says Jen. Well, there's a, a line of George Orwell's I always liked. He went to a miners meeting and he expected the miners to be mad as hell and urging industrial action and threatening uh, to bring the country to a halt. And instead, they weren't like that at all. And he came away from the miners meeting and said there is no turbulence left in England. And that is the bet that governments around the world have made, that there is no turbulence left in England, there is no turbulence left in New Zealand, there is no turbulence left in Canada. That's, that's the way they're betting, Jen, and they're pretty confident they can hold the lid on this. Um, let's go to Rax, who says, yep, I'm sick of the hokey-cokey of variants. We just have to get on with it and accept deaths when they occur. Uh, the trouble is wider mainstream media that blame government, whatever they do, forget world leaders not masking up the National Teachers Award and not a mask in sight. I don't think it's coincidence that at uh, the G7, for example, uh, when they all come out on the podium and give the press conference, they've all got their masks on. And then when you catch them at the reception in casual shots afterwards, none of them have got their, their, their masks on there. And we just have to get on with it and accept deaths when they occur. You know, we've done that throughout most of human history. If you look at tuberculosis... Uh, in the 19th century, it could uh, descend on you out of nowhere, and you just had to uh, and you just had to accept that. Uh, Paul says this mask wearing policy is unbelievable. Masks in shops, but not in pubs. It's like saying you can use your mobile in a car on an A road, but not on a motorway. And actually, maybe even more stupid like that than that. It's like a bit like saying you could dial a local number. Uh, in your car, but you can't dial an international number in your car. Thank you. Thank you for those. We'll have more uh, of
of your thoughts in Stump the Stein a, a little on, uh, a little later on. What the Farage are the men behind the hate crime that never was. Uh, the man behind it insists he was nonetheless the victim of it. This is the American actor Jussie Smollett who insists he got a sudden urge to go out for a meatball sub from the Subway sandwich chain in the middle of a polar vortex at two in the morning, as who doesn't, in Chicago. Uh, and uh, he says he was a victim of a real crime uh, being, uh, being beaten uh, as he attempted to return home with his meatball sub. Uh, he was a victim of a real crime as he stands at trial for hiring two men to attack him as he went to Subway for that meatball sandwich in the middle of a polar vortex. Jussie Smollett is gay and black, and so the idea was that this was a racist, homophobic hate crime, and he was beaten up by two white guys, and instead the two white guys turned out to be two black guys from Nigeria. Rather hunky black guys, actually in terrific shape because they're friends of his who work out at the gym he owns, apparently. Uh, he didn't really think through this self-hate crime uh, very thoroughly, but in court, uh, his lawyer insists that the $3,500 check he gave them wasn't to pay them off for pretending to beat him up on a Chicago street, but actually to train him for an upcoming music video. I don't know about you, but if you're ever uh, mugged or you're attacked on the streets of the big city, uh, one way out of it is always to offer them uh, a $3,500 $3, check uh, to train them up, to train you up for the next music video. Here's one for the James Bond fans out there. This, this is Q at his best, the Russian version of Q. Russia's military has designed a bizarre spy rock listening device, which is expected to be used against its enemies. A clip has been released by them showing a fake stone that moves on wheels. So it's like a Fred Flintstone type car, I guess, uh, with a spy camera that pops out of the top. You see that rock? It's moving. It's on the move. It's going to it's going to nestle. Uh, just outside the British Embassy and uh, pick up on everything the MI6 station chief is saying there. Uh, those behind this, this rock say it could come in handy for fr trench warfare. Um, it's controlled by radio signals and can be operated from a mile away. My, you know, if you've got a seven-year-old kid, um, he might be impressed at, at, uh, with a rock that he can drive around, but it, it seems a bit primitive in the age of drones. You may remember about 10 years back, by the way, uh, MI6 placed outside the Russian foreign ministry like a fake rockery garden uh, with with some tree that was uh, eavesdropping on everything that went in in the uh, Russian foreign ministry. So uh, take pride, Britain, because MI6 got to this ahead of the Russians. For two centuries, the Royal National Lifeboat Institution has been the principal maritime rescue service throughout the British Isles, Britain, Ireland, the Isle of Man, the Channel Islands. It's a charity, and a lot of the people who donate to it are not happy at the subtle evolution in its remit. The laughably misnamed UK Border Force, there's no border, and it certainly isn't enforced. Um, they're happy to use the RNLI as a high-speed taxi service for the thousand migrants a day heading from France to the English coast. Over the weekend, however, there was a showdown at Hastings when a group of people claiming to be RNLI donors 
tried to prevent the RNLI lifeboat from launching. They stood directly in front to try to prevent it being put in the water. Let's take a look at that. Well, the RNLI called the police and the boat eventually set off on its now routine mission to fast track refugees from France, whatever refugees from France means, into the UK. I wonder if there will be more of this. According to a new YouGov poll, 82% of voters think the government is mishandling the migrant crisis. What does that mean? Does it mean they want the migrants expeditiously processed and safely fast tracked to St Pancras on the Eurostar? Or does it mean they don't want these migrants at all? Well, YouGov drills down and finds that 61% of respondents wants the boat, they want the boats intercepted in the English Channel and turned back to France. And 61% also believe that the UK should not accept any asylum applications from those who've come from safe countries where they could already have claimed asylum, such as France. On the left, David Blunkett, the former Labour Home Secretary, warns that voters will turn against Sir Keir Starmer if the party goes all in on express check-in mass migration and that the UK could wind up with Prime Minister Nigel Farage, which would mean guest hosts at 7pm until the end of time. So we stand on the brink of the abyss. Uh, David Chazan joins us. He's the Paris correspondent for The Telegraph, and he's been following this story a long while. David, those two preferred options in this new poll, the boats should be turned back in the middle of the English Channel uh, and sent straight back to France, and that no one should be allowed to make an asylum application if they come from a safe country where they could already have claimed asylum. Uh, what are the chances in the real world of either of those things coming to pass? Well, in the first case, I think the chances that Britain actually starts turning boats back is rather remote. Firstly, because that will end cooperation with the French, who see that, that as a red line. They want to look for a solution that, in their eyes, is less brutal. Um, and they're also asking Britain to allow migrants who are in countries like France to make asylum applications without crossing the channel. Um, so that, they believe, would prevent or help to minimize the risk of disasters such as the one we saw last week, where 27 migrants were killed trying to cross the channel in a flimsy boat. So the French government's take on this is rather different from uh, either the British public as reflected in that poll or certainly uh, Boris Johnson's government. This is the difference, though, isn't it, David? Uh, for the most part, as Nigel likes to point out when he's in this chair, 
the media, the other networks, the BBC and Sky, haven't covered this story. Then 27 people drown in the English Channel, and it's covered as an humanitarian question. In other, ways, in other words, how can we get these people into the country without them drowning en route? And the public seems to be saying fairly firmly, no, no, no. Uh, that's they've taken that risk, and whatever the risk, we don't we don't want them coming into the country. Uh, w w as we've just heard, we've been talking. But the, there's supposed to be a pandemic. Uh, there's restrictions on if a businessman from Johannesburg wants to fly into Heathrow, he can't. Why should we just take thousands of people every week now, and we don't know their COVID status or anything? So isn't this? starting to turn into a Brexit type thing where there's a, a gulf between where popular opinion is and where the political class is? Well, I'm not sure about popular opinion in the UK. Popular opinion here in France, where I am, is also highly divided on this issue. Today, we saw the far-right commentator Eric Zemmour confirming that he's going to be a presidential candidate in the election in a few months. He sees immigration as the number one problem facing France. But um, France does take in more asylum seekers every year than Britain does. And, um, of course, one of the big points of friction between the UK and France on this issue is that Boris Johnson wants all of the migrants who succeed in crossing the channel illegally to be sent back to France. And the French are rejecting that. They say that they would be prepared to take some of them back, provided Britain takes in child refugees, i.e. children who have been accorded the status of refugees because they come from war-torn countries or they're fleeing persecution. So, I mean, it's a really difficult problem. I think it's a global problem, and you can't just wish it away, because as long as extreme poverty and conflicts are going on in the Middle East, in Africa, people are going to, to continue to come. But one thing the French government says is that Britain is working against itself because of its loose labor laws. It's much easier for illegal immigrants right. to slip into the grey economy and to work without papers in the UK than it is in France or other European countries. That's true. And so the French are asking the true. British government... Sorry, carry on. Let me, let me just, no, no, let me ask you this, David, since you brought up Monsieur Zamour, and you're quite right, Monsieur Zamour says that immigration is war. That's his view of it. But isn't it the case that he announced today his uh, presidential campaign because uh, the previous uh, so-called far-right figure, Marine Le Pen, is not regarded as being sufficiently far-right on this issue. In other words, he saw an opening because he thought Marine Le Pen had gotten a little squishy on this subject, and the buzz around him suggests that he may well be right in that calculation. Yeah, the initial buzz around him certainly suggested that there was an appetite for what Zemmour had to say, but... In recent days, his poll ratings have been slipping. 
He's lost one of his big financial backers. And so the Zamor phenomenon may turn out to have been not much more than a flash in the pan. It is certainly true okay. that Marine Le Pen, who for years has incarnated the far-right anti-immigration platform in France, mm. has tried to, as she puts it, detoxify her party by making mm. it a bit more moderate in an effort to attract more mainstream traditional conservative voters. And the risk when she does well, that well. is that she loses core support from more extreme people. So difficult, so, difficult uh, yeah. position for her to be in. A, d a difficult, a difficult straddle. Yeah, I'd forgotten that detoxify because uh, it looks as if she may have detoxified too far and it may be time to retoxify. But thank you. Thank you for that, David. And we'll hold you to your prediction about Monsieur Zamor when the election actually takes place. Coming next on tonight's Farage, Talking Pints with the peerless pop picker, Paul Gambaccini. That's next. Talking Pints is being conducted virtually tonight, but I raise a glass to the one and only Paul Gamaccini, one of the best disc jockeys ever in the history of United Kingdom radio. And Paul has the all-time greatest... Oh, he looks like he's got a glass of something a little more sophisticated there. Uh, Paul, Paul has the all-time greatest theme tune on Pick of the Pops every Saturday. And it's such a killer theme tune uh, that all the records he plays afterwards in the top 20 are a severe anticlimax. But he's such a good presenter, you don't really notice that until he's counted down to number seven or so. Everyone loves to take a crack at that theme tune from Emerson, Lake and Palmer to the B band of the Jugend Brass Band Forum in Germany. <laughs> with uh, Barbara Moore's fantastic arrangement and the musicians she brought into the studio 50 years ago. Paul, it must be uh, such a thrill to get to talk over that music uh, at one o'clock every Saturday. I mean, that's you've just got the all-time best signature tune there. I think you're right. And also, it's a challenge every week because one thing that Barbara Moore did was uh, she leaves uh, the junctions. So uh, you have to speak up to a moment of a second of silence and then continue. Uh, it, it, it's, it keeps right. you young, dare I say it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, that, and I that's, love it. That's it, certainly right. Yeah. And, and then you get and to you the always end. Have such, you, you, and you always Go have ahead. such fun in the middle section of it, which has got those, as you said, those little gaps. And you're just like fitting in one word, two words uh, in those gaps. It's a fan it's a fantastic performance, actually, actually, Paul. You know, you're a great enthusiast. You're an enthusiast about pop records and you're an enthusiast about comic books. And I would love to talk to you about all those enthusiasms because you're a great communicator at that. Uh, and and 
uh, and, and in fact, you turn up in historic comic books. I think you were you were mentioned as the couturier for supervillains in in an uh, right. in an uh, edition of the Flash, <laughs> which is a great privilege. And I'm sure you'd much rather prefer to be a couturier for supervillains rather than the more ordinary villains you've had to deal with in the last few years. Uh, a few weeks ago, you signed a, a, a public letter, an open letter, uh, about uh, the misbehavior, to put it mildly, of the Metropolitan Police. I take it after all these years, that still weighs on you? Well, of course it does. We think of the words of Cliff Richard, who said to me, it's terribly disappointing to realize that the people you should be able to trust the most are actually the people you can trust the least. He was referring to the police. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. I know that as uh, Daniel Day-Lewis in the famous performance of Hamlet at the National Theater, which I actually saw where he just hit his head against the set because he was yep. having some kind of visitation from his father. Uh, you can hit your head against the wall and it doesn't change things. There are estates of power in this country that do not wish to be reformed. And uh, yep. I ran up against a couple of them. And uh, yep. so what you have to do is you just have to try to arrange for re reforms that you can get. You know, it's a sorry person who tries to get something that he can't get. But uh, you may not be into praising Theresa May, but I praise Theresa May for <laughs> standing up for the police and introducing uh, reform on the bail issue. Uh, and that, that yep. was a practical thing. You see, all of the things that have to be done are actually practical. But when we had that meeting of seven people who were famous for their uh, spats with the police, including Baroness Lawrence, for mm. example, Lady Britain, mm. Harvey Proctor, and so forth. Mm. And mm. Uh, so we, we wrote this open letter to the prime minister, and it was on the front page of the Daily Mail. And the very day the Daily Mail came out, Cressida Dick was reappointed. <laughs> I mean, it was it was like they were going. Yeah, Shh. yeah, no. Um, well, you you so, gave some of the name you you gave some of the names that you're in that letter with. It's not the kind of company you'd normally be keeping. I doubt you were a big fan of Leon Britton when he was Home Secretary. The name you didn't mention. This this is what really shocked me, Paul, when I read that letter. Is that most of the names there are are of widows and uh, children of those who were targeted. Because someone like Field Marshal Lord Bramall, who uh, landed on the beaches at D-Day, he was part of the occupation of Japan, the incursion into Indonesia, he served his country all his life, and then at the end, He's, uh, he's ensnared in this uh, Cressida Dick operation that she sanctioned, which is completely absurd on, in its face, that somehow the House of Lords, which I have no use for, but somehow that uh, prominent members of the House of Lords are drinking the blood of seven-year-old boys at the Carlton Club every Wednesday night. That fantasist was allowed to destroy the last years of uh, these very distinguished people. This is a tragedy and an outrage simultaneously. I sat next to Lord Bramall's son as we recorded our conversation, and he was asked what his father's response had been 
to these accusations and the police taking them seriously. Mm. And the son said, I have stepped onto the sands at D-Day. I have defended our nation in the Falklands. <laughs> and his wife said, finish it, finish it. Mm. And he said, but mm. I have never felt as insulted and as threat as I do now. This false, insane episode in our nation's history uh, cut him to the quick in his very final years. Right. Uh, he, yes, the words yeah. he used were, I never felt mortally wounded until now. Can you imagine that? The nation's greatest is, living no. world. Yeah, no, no, it's it's terrible. In your case, it was a completely cynical act because it came up at the time of the Jimmy Savile and, and, and all the rest of it. And it was said that the police didn't want to say there's no case uh, to answer for Paul Gambaccini because if a Radio 1 disc jockey were to skate, it would somehow diminish all the Operation U you tree rubbish you wrote a fantastic book about this a year under the yew tree and it begins with you uh, waking up on what's just going to be another ordinary day and within a couple of hours you're in a london police station and you realize essentially that until this nightmare ends you're living your life uh, on the terms of the metropolitan police uh, are you relieved to have survived this I certainly am, because not everybody did. Freddie Starr died. You may remember that. Uh, he he yeah. completely cracked up, went to pot, went to Spain and died. Um, I, I had the benefit of fantastic husband and close friends. And when institutions drop you like a stone for fear of taint, mm. your dear ones stand mm. by you. And they are enough to get you through. Thank God. Thank God. Now, well, of course, thank you. Thank you for that, Paul. Yeah, it's been it, uh, it. It's it's a it's a terrific fight you're waging. I can't let you go though, without asking you the thing you're really expert in. Uh, I was uh, watching last night uh, the end of the Queen's reign in Barbados, and what popped into my head of all things was, "Whoa, I'm going to Barbados." by the band Typically Tropical. Do you know where that got to in the UK charts? That, that was a number one. That was a number one in 1975. Well, and then they went on top well, of the you go. and people realized they were white, and that was the end of that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And it said that, it, I believe it said that that kept uh, Streets of London by Ralph McTell for being number one for which we should. I'll tell you what, you know everything. Uh, where did it get to in the Belgian charts? Belgium, I, I, I don't know, I'm afraid. <laughs> but I, I, I want to say something to you because I know this matters to you as well. Yeah. Even Sondheim, yeah. his loss is, yeah. is so great. Yeah. He, what a wonderful, wonderful talent he was. And what a great thrill and, it and was for me we, we... to have a live interview with him on the radio uh, when I was broadcasting the Olivier Awards and there was a snag between a couple of awards so I had 15 minutes live with Sondheim and Cameron McIntosh now that was a delight and wow. Sondheim said that's, that's more good... yeah yeah the first yeah, great reviews on. he ever 
the first great reviews he ever got were in London for a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Yeah. So he'd always been grateful to Britain since then. Well, that's uh, that's that's true. I won't ask you about his record on the hit parade because I think it boils down to Judy Collins. But thank you. Thank you, Paul. That's uh, that was terrific stuff. By the way, uh, typically Tropical got to number 17 in the Flemish uh, hit parade, but only 32 on the Walloon uh, hit parade. That's it. Time to uh, we do we have a time for. Uh, no, we, we will do a quick one. Do you think Eric Zemmour stands a chance of winning the French presidential election? Asked Dr. Hackenbush. Oh, yes. You should never. We, if we've learned anything these last two years, it's that you never know what is coming up. Uh, Ian asked, do you think American society is about to collapse? We're all about to collapse. It's the end of the world, folks. Head for the hills. Don't wait until it's happened. <laughs> 